Welcome to the LB Performance Podcast with me, your host, Lawrence Bourne. Consider supporting us by rating, reviewing and subscribing to wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify and iTunes, as well as sharing the episodes through your social media. You can get in touch with us using our Instagram handle, which is performance underscore LB, or you can use our email address, which is coach at lbperformance.ie. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. What do you think of that intro? Bit different, eh? Welcome to season two of the LB Performance Podcast. We're back again for another 10 episodes. I hope you guys are keeping well. I hope you guys haven't missed me too much over the last three weeks that I've been gone. Thankfully, I was finished up at college now for for that particular module that I was focusing on, and I'm back again now for another season. So the goal for this season is to one, increase contact with the listeners a bit more. So I'd love to get in touch with you guys more, get a bit more feedback off you guys as well. And just to hear what you guys think of the episodes. And if you have anything that you want to contribute to each episode, that would be brilliant. Thank you to everyone for all the efforts and all the questions that you offered in season one. More of that, please. And thank you. As well as that, I also want to provide you guys more of the same of what you enjoyed from season one. There was a lot of positive feedback from season one, which I hugely, hugely appreciate. And again, thanks to all the guests that came on. To kick off episode one of season two, we're going to be speaking to a performance nutritionist and researcher at Dublin City University, Mark Germain, about all things nutrition within a high-performance GAA setup. For those of you that don't know who, what GAA is, it's a mixture of two different sports, hurling and Gaelic football, which is the native sport in the country of Ireland. Uh, we discuss his background and how to go about becoming a performance nutritionist, as well as providing some detail about how Mark sets out his nutritional strategies for the different points within a GAA season. At the end, we'll answer the listeners' questions, but we also delve a little bit into uh, nutrition during a pandemic. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. Here's Mark, and I'll chat to you guys, as always, on the other side. Mark, welcome to the LB Performance Podcast. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you? How's things? Thanks for bringing me on. Oh, thanks for coming on. Appreciate your time with this. I have a lot of listeners who are actually very, very eager to talk to you, or supposed to listen to you, first of all, but to actually get a few questions answered. So we're going to get them at the very, very end. But I wanted to start off by talking about you, Mark. So just to give the listeners a bit of brief as to who you are and how you got to where you are now. Do you want the, the long version? I can give oh, you the long. Give me the long version of we'll edit it if we have to. <laughs> I suppose people can kind of look at going into sport nutrition or sports science as different career paths. But for me, I think uh, I got an interest in, in kind of nutrition in, in general when I was, I don't know, like 18, 19 and lost those away. And then from that, I went in and actually started, I started off in personal training. So I went in and did a personal training course and I was doing personal training for about two years. I don't know why, but I just, I felt like I wanted to do take go to another level if that makes sense so i was i was reading science already at this point i was i was really interested in it and i thought a degree in sports science might kind of kind of suit me i was looking at dietetics at the time because my interest was nutrition but probably more so kind of nutrition and not dietetics because when i looked at dietetics there's, there's a lot of clinical stuff in there which i wasn't really interested in so then i looked at sports science and that's what kind of like sparked my interest. I had an interest in training as well. I played sports when I was younger. So I did my undergrad at Techno- it's called Technological University of Dublin now, isn't it? But it was IT Tala at the time. Did my did my degree there. 
And actually, in my very first year of studying, there's a lecture there called Marcus Shortall. He's a nutritionist now with RFU, uh, who, you, who you know. He'd actually told me that Graham Close and James Morton, who are two big names in sport nutrition, were in the middle of setting up a master's program in sport nutrition at Liverpool's John Moores University. And ever since that, I can even remember, we were in a lab, I think it might have been like a biology lab or something like that in first year. And then from that point, I kind of had my eyes set on going to Liverpool John Moores University to do the sport nutrition master's. And I was fortunate enough after four years in Tallaght, I got accepted into to Liverpool, went over to Liverpool, did my master's in sport nutrition over there, learned a lot loads from a lot of great people at Liverpool. There's loads of people to learn from, loads of different sports. For me, I think the thing that sets Liverpool John Moore's apart from all the other kind of sport nutrition courses was the access to, you know, high level elite performance. You got placements at, you know, elite level clubs or elite level athletes. So I would have got experience working with horse racing, for example, and I was working with like uh, Jim Crowley, who was British champion jockey at the time. So the top top of the top, you know, when I was just like, still just a master's student, but you're getting this, you know, one-on-one time working with these elite athletes during the course of a season. Would have had friends who are working with the likes of Everton Football Club at the academy there. Other people doing like uh, rugby union clubs. So you get a lot of hands-on experience. And I would have worked um, Monday to Friday job when I did my undergrad degree and I'd saved up money. And when I went to Liverpool, it was kind of the first time since I was 18 that I hadn't worked. So because I, w- I wanted to like fully immerse myself in getting as much experience as I could. But I was also involved then with stuff with the RFU. So we were doing camps with the under-16 um, squads on behalf of like Rugby Football Union. Then I would have worked in combat sports as well. I got in with a boxing gym there. And then I was also working with the kind of sport scholarship program at Liverpool John Moores University. So the scholarships are a lot bigger in the UK, <clears throat> not quite as big as the US, but they're a lot bigger in the UK than they would be in Ireland. So you'd have dedicated sports science, essentially facilities for training the athletes that were coming through. And you know, some of them will eventually go off to Olympic level or if not national level. And then you also have something called Talented Athlete Scholarship Scheme. So this is TAS. And these are kind of, again, lottery funded, a little bit like Olympic sport is, lottery funded athletes. They're not quite at that level of Olympian, but they'd again, they'd be funded through the university. So I'd have worked in sports like powerlifting and, and stuff like that. So it'd be people who weren't necessarily in the university, but the sports science support was being delivered through the university. That's how I kind of got into the practice of sport nutrition. Boxing would have been one that I kind of kept on. And I was in the gym every day nearly um, when, when I was. So the prof- professional boxers used to train from like um, 12 to 1 or 12 to half 1. And every day, Monday to Friday, I was in the gym. And you learn a lot from that. You know, you're, you get build relationships with the coaches. You build relationships with the athletes. And that's how I kind of got my trade into, into boxing. Coming back from Liverpool, I still I still work with some boxers, and now I suppose where I am now is a I'm a researcher at DCU, and I'm also then working with Dublin GA with the senior hurlers, and I also do some of the under twenty squads as well. So so it's a bit a bit of a journey, like a, a good few years, but yeah, it's a it's a, it's a long old road into it. It's not like you do um you know a degree in engineering and you go straight into an engineering job. It's you kind of have to carve your own path a little bit more. Definitely. And I also feel like this is probably opening up a different topic that I don't want to go too much into today, but there's also the case of, um, I suppose, the size of the industry here in Ireland in comparison to the UK. I mean, when you go to Liverpool, as you said, you have access to all these really high performance, yeah, high performance athletes, high performance teams. Over here, you would have access to some of that depending on who you know, but that's where we're networking comes in. How did you get into nutrition when it comes to the GAA? You were saying you're working with the Dublin Hurlers? When I came back to, to Dublin, 
what it was is that people would obviously know Daniel Davey, who's with the footballers, and Brendan Egan was with the senior hurlers. I work with Brendan at DCU, so DC, like Brendan would be my supervisor. Brendan actually got funded to go to Florida uh, on a Science Foundation Ireland project, and then through that, Brendan basically introduced me into the, the Dublin setup, and then I got involved with Dublin Senior Hurling. I was working with the hurlers starting uh, last season, and then from that, the under-20s then contacted me and asked me to do stuff for them, and then following on from that as well, uh, while I was working with the under-20, sorry, that was under-20 footballers, and then while I was working with the under-20 footballers, the under-20 hurling coach got in contact with me as well, and I started working with the under-20 hurlers as well, and it kind of snowballs from there, you're kind of working with one one group, you kind of, if you make a good impression, then you start working with other groups, and you kind of get your foot in the door a little bit. Brilliant. And what kind of roles and what kind of responsibilities do you have then being the nutritionist of a hurling team and a football team? Yeah, I suppose it's slightly different when it comes to the senior setup and during the 20 setup. And it's, it's probably mainly because I'm physically at every training session when it comes to hurling. With the senior squad, I'm, uh, like if we're training three, four times a week, it depends. Um, you, might, you might be in four times a week because you'll, you might play or you might train Tuesday, train Thursday, they might have a match on a Saturday and the people who don't have a match on a Saturday might be training on a Sunday or, you know, doing a recovery session on a Sunday. I'm, I'm there kind of all the time. So I'm there Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday. Or So that means I haven't got the time to be at the under 20 training sessions, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So then that kind of makes, makes my role a little bit different with the two squads. So I'll be a lot more hands-on with the, the hurlers when, when that comes to like testing. You do like body composition testing. You'd work a lot more individually with a lot of the athletes. I'd, I'd work a lot more on the logistics side as well. I'd like every week you're kind of in contact with the catering team. So we'd have a catering company who like feed us after training sessions, before matches, after matches, your menu planning each week. You know, you're kind of getting feedback from the players. You're taking some stuff off the menu, which you don't like. Then sometimes I might get ideas. So uh, like one thing that uh, the catering company are great, by the way, who we're working with. So we would have went from uh, before COVID, we were getting like some collagen shots for some injured players, for example, and then after COVID gone, budgets were cut. I had I just I had a recipe for collagen which I'd given players previously. And I was like, I might I'll just ask the catering company, you know, if I send them this recipe, will they just make us these collagen shots? And it cost the it cost us a euro to make them, whereas it's two pound fifty per shot per supplement. So it's actually a cost saving exercise and you're getting that added benefits because a lot of the time when, you're, when you go through food source, you're getting other nutrients in there as well. So I might start looking for, for other ways to do stuff, stuff like that. But that'd be some some part of it as well. You know, you're involved with the, the man, team management meetings, trying to design kind of recovery protocols as well and so on. And then you're working more individually with players. Contrast that to some of the work you do with the under 20s like that. Because because you're kind of less hands-on, um, you wouldn't have as close a relationship with each individual players. There might still be like some players in the squad who you would have a relationship with. They'll text you all um, whenever they need something, which I try to encourage them to do. But it's probably more a setup of, you know, delivering kind of education sessions or, you know, this is what kind of recovery looks like. I'm, like during the pandemic or after the pandemic, when even I can't be physically there. Uh, like before pandemic, I would have done physical sessions with them. Post pandemic, I couldn't do physical sessions with them. So I was like recording like a 20 minute like talk on recovery and then sending videos into the group and that type of that type of stuff. So it's a little bit more educational. I still might be involved with some of the catering stuff, for example, with the, the under 20 squads and um, more so the under 20 footballers, but but less so and you know, trying to work work around that. You also have like other stuff like supplements, working with supplement companies and sponsors and so on. 
So there's a lot of liaising involved as a part, as opposed to just focusing on the food aspect of things with the team, really. And that's the one thing I actually want to delve into a little bit more. And I actually want to break it down into the stages of coach, educator, and then just the one-on-one nutritionist, I suppose. So the first one being a, a coach, you, you mentioned there when you were talking with the coaching staff or having your meetings, where do you stand in that, in that coaching setup? And what, I suppose what goes on in those meetings that you have to provide information? Yeah, I suppose I, I'd, I'd probably have a, a small enough role. It depends on, on the session because I, a lot of like hurling, um, it's about like managing coaching, coaching sessions. I wouldn't have a lot to offer when it comes to planning a training session, for example, whereas coaching staff and um, strength and conditioning staff might have different goals, you know, so they might have to discuss their goals. Whereas for me, I just kind of see my role as kind of facilitating whatever it is. So if I know that the coaching team are targeting something specific at this session, so I, if they're not going into a power block, well, then my kind of nutrition delivery can be a little bit different. So I'm supporting what they're doing in terms of the training sessions. If I know that we're going to have like a really hard training session on Thursdays, well, then I can kind of liaise one with the catering company and, you know, say like we might get some sort of meal, which just kind of has more carbs in it or something like that, just along them lines, something small, simple. But then I also might liaise with the players and say, you know, you know with traffic lights this week. So Tuesday is going to be a green day, you know, so you don't, it's quite easy. Thursday is a, a red day, so it's a hard day. So that means consume more carbohydrate beforehand. So if I can have like input for, for stuff like that, then the rest of the stuff might just be kind of, it depends, like if you're just brainstorming and, and so on. But I wouldn't like, I wouldn't be an influential role in terms of GA with nutrition. Sure. Yeah, no, I understand. And then when it comes to the educator aspect of things then, so you were saying, and it's something I really find interesting and thank God for technology that we're able to do this now, but you were saying that you can record videos to educate the players. What kind of stuff are you educating them on? For example... With the way that the season went after COVID, it was essentially week after week, um, game on game, which you probably wouldn't get too, too often during championship. So that kind of presented new challenges or maybe a little bit more focus on recovery than would have been necessary. You've got more time. So I might have done some kind of simple, like quick, short videos, like um, like 10 minutes long on recovery. So what are we aiming to do with recovery and what does that look like? So we're, even if I'm just doing like something like a three hours, rehydrate, replenish glycogen, repair. So what, what does good rehydration look like? What does good re- replenishing a carbohydrate look like? What does good repair of protein or, you know, damaged muscle look like? You know, this is what we need to be in. And then kind of like put it together. Like this is what your time might, might, might look like. So we know that we're kind of, I have like stuff in the gesture, for example, whether it be kind of straight after the game, we're going to get some dismantle hydration in. You've got this, you know, shake to consume. And then we're going to have like, we know that once we get back to somewhere else, we're going to have a meal. So that's our step two. But then I've got, a, I've got like a plan then when you get home. So we have to essentially divide into two halves. The part that we control in terms of in the stadium and in terms of catering and then the part that they control. So when you go home, this is what good looks like. You know, this is what great looks like. If it's a, And that might be different now, depending on if it's an early game, you probably have more opportunity to feel later on. If it's an evening game, you might only have an opportunity for like a, a snack when you go home and making sure you're having something before bed. But then also then that recovery continues the next day. And like, if for, for example, I might have a, like a rule of thumb that it should be back to your normal body weight by midday the next day. So then if you're not back up towards your normal body weight, that's probably an indication that you're de- still dehydrated or still kind of not put the carbohydrate back in enough. So that's our kind of like our benchmark, if you're saying that's a really easy benchmark for people, you know, if you know, we weigh yourself beforehand, midday the next day, how far are you off? If it's more than 2%, you know, because 2% is all you can really measure in terms of difference in, the, in terms of body mass. 
Um, anything else is not really that sensitive. If you're more than 2%, well then, you know, you need to be doing a little bit better when it comes to recovery and nutrition, probably, you know, you're probably dehydrated. If you're in around that 2%, well then you're okay. And then we're kind of progressing on to the next stage of nutrition. You know, are you checking in to see your physio? You know, have you got any niggles they need to sort out? If you're sore, do you need to do some sort of cold water stuff? If you're not sore, are you doing some active recovery? You're moving into the next stages of nutrition or not in nutrition, recovery. If you think of it like a recovery framework, different players are going to need different levels of recovery. Some players might might come on as a sub for a couple of minutes. Then they don't need to be probably doing ice pads because they're not going to have loads of muscle damage. If a player has played a full game and they're experiencing lots of muscle damage, well, then some cold might be suitable for them. If someone isn't sore, well, then cold might not be suitable for them. And, you know, maybe, they're, maybe they have a different recovery strategy. I've took this kind of from... Robin Thorpe, who he's at Altus performance now, but he would have been at United and he, his whole research was in the area of like monitoring fatigue and recovery, but it's about treating people depending on what stage of recovery in. And you know what stage of recovery in based on kind of symptoms. So with someone's sore, but then maybe you want to reduce blood flow to the area and that's where maybe cold more immersion works. If someone isn't sore, well then it's probably not a, not a need to be kind of reducing blood flow to the area. And then they, they're in that next stage of recovery. So you can kind of deliver warm water or active recovery. So you're pumping more, more in around there. So try try to use that as well and that moving through the phases of recovery. The last part of this umbrella, if you will, was to talk about the nitty gritty of being a nutritionist. Now, what I'm really curious about, as, as I'm sure many listeners are, is I want to talk about, I suppose, the different stages of the season. The first one being off season and then then the preseason. So in that transition in between off-season and pre-season, how much of a role do you play in that? And what specifically do you do? Are there particular kind of KPIs that you're looking out for being the nutritionist? Yeah, so from off-season, you'd still be in contact with players. There might be some people who are in contact with you more. So you might have some people who would work with you right through the off-season. Like, again, it's, it's player-specific, this. So there might be some people who maybe were injured one season and they start coming back into the team and they view off-season as their time to get in shape, to get back into the squad next season. You might have some people who just slack off during the off-season, you know, who, who won't text you, probably won't reply to you. And then you'll have people who are kind of, you'll follow up from time to time. You might have like um, at least 50% of the squad where you don't need to be on them every week. You know, like once a month, you're having a phone call, seeing how they're getting on, if they need any changes with diet and advice, or especially now with, with kind of code and people are working from home, you know, how, how are they kind of structuring their meals at home? Like some people might need a little bit of extra guidance from there, you know, especially maybe some people would have been working at companies where you got food provided and now there's no food provided and you just need quick meals when you're at home. So, there's these kind of different things and challenges where people have when they're in the off season. When you move into pre-season, typically what you do from kind of a nutrition perspective, one, one thing you'd have like um, some sort of body composition assessment, just, just to kind of get an idea of where players were, are and where they are compared to previous and maybe where they need to be. And there's no hard and fast real when it comes to body composition for players, you know, People have, there's like a set point theory where kind of people have their own kind of range of body fat where they perform best. So what's best for one player might not be best for another player. Mm. And what's best for one position might not be best for another position. So body composition is very individual. I know like sometimes there can be a little bit of competition between players, you know, seeing who has the lowest. I you kind of use it more so as a, as a tool for tracking change as opposed to a tool for saying this is good and this is bad. You know, so if we're coming back in at the start of the season, 
and you know we're kind of moving into getting fitter uh like maybe they start leaning up throughout the preseason. we're using that just to kind of track change as if to say you know this is good you need to get that below this otherwise that's bad you know there, there are no kind of hard and fast when it comes to, to body composition you might have some sort of level which is kind of your standards but there's a lot of variance around that for example i can just think of like last season some people who you might they might have not been at kind of their standard but they're playing brilliantly you know I didn't say anything to them and he someone actually came came up to me after the game and was saying oh you know I want to get trimmed down or something like that a little bit and I was like to be honest I haven't even said anything because you've been playing excellent so you know it's no no concern to me if like whatever comes up on a body composition is a little high. At the end of the day, it's an arbitrary number, really. There's no kind of like performance indicator that says you have to be this percent body, body fat. And even when you are taking body composition me- measurements, there's lots of error in them. It's not perfect. The only way you're really going to know how much body fat you have is if like you cut someone up and actually measure all the fat. So it's, it's rather an arbitrary number. Like whether something says it's 13% or 12% or 15%, it's just a number at the end of the day. And that number isn't going to dictate how you perform when it comes to playing on the pitch. I don't put too much kind of faith in it. Like, if someone is overweight to the point that's affecting performance, you don't need a body composition assessment to tell that. You know, you you can normally tell if. And then when you do actually address that during nutrition, you'll see improvements. But if you if you're having to measure like small changes, it's probably not going to have a massive impact on performance. And like I said, you're more kind of measuring it, you know, to compare themselves to themselves. You know, where this is where you're at last season, this is where you're at now. If you're gonna get back to the standard as last season or whatever, like this is what you might need to do. Not comparing each other to each other because everybody's different at the end of the day. What's your battery of tests? When it comes to body composition? Uh yeah, just in general, even as a nutritionist, really. Like what kind of what kind of tests would you run and how often would you run them? Yeah, so in terms of body composition, we switched from DEXA to skin folds. So the oh, really? Yeah, so DEXA used to be often but apparently there's some new laws in Ireland now where they won't let the decks frequently essentially so hmm. I think they were wanting us to wait three months in between decks for example I'm trained in doing skill, skin folds to ISAC, so I introduced doing skin folds then because like I said skin folds are not good at kind of estimating body fat percentage if that makes sense so I'd never convert skin folds into a body fat percentage because just too much noise and, it, and it's often under predicts compared to DEXA. But what you'll do is you get like a total amount of skin folds in terms of millimeters. And then if you're consistent with the skin fold calipers, you can track change. And like I was saying, we're only kind of interested in tracking change. We're not kind of comparing, you're comparing a person to themselves. You're not comparing to other people in the squad really. If it's a, a reliable tool to track change over time, which skin fold calipers are, it's actually a decent paper that if anyone's interested in that only just came out about a week or two ago, about skin fall calipers. Can't remember it in the title of the paper. Well, it's from Graham Close and Andy Casper, basically saying, you know, bringing back the merits of skin falls because there would have been a push from skin falls to DEXA in more kind of high performance environments if they had the, the capacity to do DEXA. But now it's kind of pushing back towards skin falls because they're really practical to do in the field. So that's what we kind of use in terms of body composition measurement. Body mass is, is another thing which is kind of simple and you'd use often as well. So even just like pre to post chain, uh, pre to post training changes in body mass kind of give you an end might give you an indication of like sweat rates or as well might kind of indicate to players how much you have to rehydrate you know to get back up because i might have guidelines in place for you know for every kilogram you lose you've got to consume like 1.5 liters of fluid something like that i have got uh, also usg so urine specific uh, gravity for measuring hydration what is usg sorry just for the listeners what is it exactly 
so what it is, you essentially have a pen and it measures the urine specific gravity of your, your urine essentially. So you stick it into the urine, you measure the urine, you're essentially measuring how concentrated it is, the urine. And you know, if it's more concentrated, the thought is then that someone's more dehydrated. You're not really assessing total hydration status. You're essentially just testing how hydrated or dehydrated this bit of piss is. Like if you were to do that, every morning like first thing in the morning then you can kind of get consistent readings it's more kind of used in research to track change during the day so again like tracking change it's not really a, a good bad in research you're kind of measuring change over time but what, what some um, themes do and what it can be used as is a kind of coaching tool so you come in and you might pick out three three players each day you know and you're like oh hydration testing and you just it just means that maybe players are thinking about making sure that they're hydrated when they're coming to training because there's a chance they can be picked out and get urine urine tested, for example. They'd, they'd, also, they'd also use USG. If anyone's ever been drug tested, that's what they'll use. So when you do a drug test, you got to give a urine sample and they'll test that urine sample for urine-specific gravity because if someone's too dehydrated, they'll have to get them to drink water and get a new sample because the more, again, the more dehydrated you are, the more concentrated the urine is. And that means anything that turns up in the urine is going to be more concentrated it even if that's like sodium or caffeine or something like that you might have had like a coffee beforehand but if you're really dehydrated that's going to show up as oh he has loads of caffeine in the system when it's really just kind of dehydration so that's they'd kind of use use that in there as well so i suppose they'd be kind of just off the top of my head some of the kind of main kind of tools of thinking about piece of equipment or anything that they, you'd have a, as a nutritionist you might have some software or something like that as well like you might use some sort of nutrition software or nutrition apps but they wouldn't be kind of physical piece of equipment that you'd use sure and then specifically with the body composition then and this is the one thing i would have realized in my time doing the isac body composition courses it's very time consuming one you are measuring so many sites and then secondly if you have like a squad of 20 or 30 people i mean is it just you doing the the, the, the body composition measurements or is there anyone else in the squad as well helping out with that no no i do it and it might take me like two weeks to do the squad so like really yeah yeah so um like you're in there before before training and after training and you might be getting five five lads done before five lads after there's about 40 people in the squad so you're thinking tuesday so tuesday thursday saturday and then the next week tuesday thursday saturday so it's it's over the course of about kind of two weeks so i'm trying to get as much people done in the in a short space of time as possible the manager might want to give a meeting before training or you might want to give a meeting after training so you're kind of you're trying you're doing what you, what you can like and actually the part that i found the hardest i should have maybe i should ask somebody to give me a hand with this is because i'm i have like the laptop there with where i enter the sites i, I should really have someone sat there and enter name where i can just call out and they pump in because i'm because you mark them up on taking the skin folds, typing it in, on going back and measuring another site, ty- typing it in, and then you go yeah. around and do do it a second time. So it is, it is like, it is what it is. Like it's a bit, it's a bit hectic, but I think that's, I think that's the way it is in 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 a lot of team sports. Like I've heard of people, for example, at the likes of Crystal Palace, and you're in the corner, uh, doing skin folds in in the dressing room. Or I actually I was went to the RFL, so the Rugby Football League, England squad, and there was like a, a camp on, and we were measuring lads. You know, like if you're in a camp, we were in a function room, we were in the corner of the function room, lads coming in, just take top off, doing skin folds in the function room. There was like a manager's meeting. We kind of stopped for that. Then after the manager's meeting, we were in the corner just doing skin folds. So it is, it's kind of, um, you kind of you kind of do it when, when you can, because then you have that data. 
Ah, yeah, no, listen, you get you, you get well used to it when you're when yeah. you're in the field as such. Um, how many sites would you normally uh, measure then? Eight. Yeah, so I do it. Oh, eight. Did wow. Yeah, I did four one. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, that's, t- that's yeah, fair play to you over two weeks anyway. That's very impressive you doing it by yourself. So fair play all the same. Um, going into then from the preseason, uh, transitioning into the, obviously the in-season. So what's a nutritional strategy when it comes to players now? So obviously they're getting a bit more game time under their belts now. They're, I imagine, depending on the individual player, they might be trying to reduce fat mass. They might be trying to gain a little bit of muscle mass. Talk me through it. What's the, what's your, what's your process? Yes, yeah, so also pre-season is if you might even think of a time for kind of adaptation. Um, so you're kind of trying to achieve maybe some sort of getting fitter, for example, just put it simply, getting faster, getting stronger. So your strategies might be more focused around targeting how best to adapt to those training sessions as opposed to, you know, fueling for maximal, reco- maximal recovery or fueling for maximal performance because the two aren't necessarily the same goals. Just like you might change your training coming up to a match, you might change your nutrition, you know, to suit different types of training training demands. So during the like preseason, you might have lots, or during the off-season, you might have, for example, have people who are trying to put on those of mass like it's time to put on some muscle coming into preseason then it might be time where they're kind of cutting back they want to kind of trim down a little bit get get fitter sharper for when the season starts when the season starts then kind of it's less so much unless you have like some outlier it's less so much about kind of manipulating body composition but you're trying to maintain whatever kind of muscle gains you've had you've got during season and then you're trying to maintain performance and recovery so in the middle when you're playing games obviously Priority number one is kind of performance. And then if you've got a game shortly after as well, priority number two is recovery. So you're not so much trying to target, you know, you might, you're not tweaking stuff to try to get some extra uh, adaptations or to get a little bit fitter. You're targeting kind of performance and recovery. So you've moved from that kind of adaptation phase into fueling performance and fueling recovery. And that might mean kind of altering how much, like, for example, carbohydrate people are eating. You might have use some train low strategies or you might have targeted lower energy sessions to kind of reduce body composition in the preseason whereas you wouldn't so much be doing that when it comes to in season because every training session matters you can't have players even being fatigued during training if you've got two training sessions in the middle of two championship games well then it's really important to perform in then training sessions for two reasons one you want to be able to actually maintain performance in the training sessions because you might be working on important stuff for for the match. But number two is that competition can be fierce to get into the starting fifteen, and everyone wants to play in championship. And if you know if you're not fueling right for training, well then you're not going to perform your best at training. And if you're not performing your best at training, you're not going to get into that starting fifteen for championship. So that's like it's, I know it's not kind of directly related to kind of performance per se or fueling performance, but you know even from a chance of like if you are. If you are number 20 in the squad, but you want to be in that 15, you know, you've got to be kind of clued in and performing your best when it comes to like that. It doesn't matter too much in preseason because, you know, people, you can try out different players and everyone's going to get a chance in preseason. When it gets competitive and everyone's fighting for that position, well, then the kind of performance again becomes more key. And, you know, you've done all the hard work to try to get into shape. Now it's about staying in shape, making sure you're still doing the gym work and eating enough to maintain muscle mass but also eating enough to try and maintain performance and maximize performance both in training sessions and in matches themselves brilliant and then individually um because obviously at the end of the day the big thing about first of all science but then especially in sports 
I'm glad it's been documented more now is just the fact that everyone is obviously in their own individual. Everyone's different in their own way. They they respond to different nutritional strategies. They they respond differently to a particular intervention, whatever have you. Point being is that with you working with a team of so many lads, how is it that you actually individualize each person? Now, when I first went in, there wasn't a requirement for me to be at every uh, training session. And actually, if you speak to probably other nutritionists around Ireland who work in GEA, it's probably not common for them to be at every training session. So probably not a common, common feat. Because if, especially if it's a uh, gym sessions are a little bit more so because I don't know, like um, if people are listening and understand in the middle of a gym session, people will come over to you and talk to you. And this actually kind of applies to this question as well. And that when you're in the gym, in the middle of sets, in, in the middle of exercises, people will come over to you, talk to you informally. It's a real informal set um, set in the gym. People will come over, this is what I had before training. What do you think of this? Or, you know, I normally eat this after training and, and so on. So you get really, you get really informal discussions in the gym. But uh, following on from that then. So on the pitch though, I don't really have much of an impact, you know, when it comes to pitch sessions because people, it's more kind of coaching on the on pitch sessions running and you're not coming over in the middle of drills and talking about nutrition. So I have less, I have less value there. When I first went in, I just kind of felt like the more time I spend with a team, the more I'm going to get to know people individually, you know, the more kind of a friendly face to become. If they see me putting out cones, picking up cones, collecting slitters and so on. And then after each training session, we would have ate together. And I tried to use that time, like when I, like I was saying, I didn't have to be there, but I felt like I'd have more of an impact if I went there, build the relationships with these people, uh, all the players. And then that would kind of stimulate those kind of ability or opportunity to have those kind of individual conversations. So I would have viewed something like this is that when the, when the players are in the gym, it's kind of, you know, the strength and conditioning coach's time, you know, that's you know his, his kind of realm or her realm where they're doing the training session when they're on the pitch, it's kind of the coach's time. But then after every training session, we'd go upstairs and we'd all eat together in like a canteen. And, and I never sat with the, the management or the coaches. I'd always go and sit at a table with players and one helped me to get to know everyone. But then two, you kind of get some, inf- you, know, you, you try to kind of lead into like informal way of like almost a Q and A and someone's not eating vegetables, something like, oh, you don't eat vegetables or you know, like someone might say something you're like, Oh, you don't you, do you not struggle do you struggle to normally eat before a match? And you kind of get this and this is how you kind of start developing like individual questions. And when one person's asking you a question, everyone else is listening. You know, so everyone everyone in that you might be six people around the table. And then you kind of and that's just kind of how I went about building relationships and kind of you know developing those kind of one-on-one conversations and now and then after the time you're at a stage where like people are ring you like I was on a phone call for example earlier on for an hour with a player and we're just kind of like if, if someone wants to change something up with the diet or most players are kind of clued in especially some of the older lads but they might want a little bit more kind of precision they might you know, like some people you'll have different players different ranges different um different like how they manage the nutrition some people will measure you know they're on my fitness pal which is mm. which is great like most people aren't on my fitness pal, so they just need a little bit more structure. But there are some people who are on my fitness pal and they, they want you to give them kind of macros. So you're giving different macros training sessions. Other people aren't so much interested in my fitness pal, but they want to know what like, a good meal. So you're giving some people recipes. Other people might want to be trying out a different diet, which is fine. You have all these, you have all like the, like vegan is a growing movement at the moment. Some people might be cutting out some sort of product for, for whatever reason. So then you're kind of working with them in that kind of regard. So you've got different people, different ranges. But for like personally, I feel that all the work done, kind of being at the training session, sitting and eating dinner together, building a relationship, you know, just 
being being a sound lad, if that makes sense, just being a mm. kind of like a friendly a friendly face, that kind of lays the groundwork for having all those kind of like individual kind of one on ones that you can't actually get at a later stage. You know, you're you're even if you're just like kind of like having a like five minute chat when you're walking with someone from the pitch in. You know, you're carrying stuff for them. You're like if someone's injured, you know, you help them off. You carry their bag to the car. All these like little things. It all adds up over time, and it kind of builds that relationship, and it kind of allows you then, you know, to have those conversations when it does come to nutrition. Brilliant. The one thing I want to touch back on then is when you said about um, liaising with the other coaches. So obviously for you as a nutritionist, you have to identify the, the, the correct strategies to follow in coalition with whatever type of session that you have going forward and whatever block you have going forward. Can you give me a very specific example as far as a nutritional strategy to perform in this particular session? Yeah. So like what, how do you mean like um like in something that we've done or like something that someone can take and yeah, put into practice something in your experience even just like i mean if, if you had like say a pitch session or a gym session coming up how would you uh recommend or how would you tell the players the fuel for that session yeah so something that we introduced was a traffic light system and we essentially did it that depending on the session um so you know green is kind of like a light session amber is like a medium session and red is like a hard session so we might do that by the amount of high speed running that has to be done in a certain session so then when the training plan is released it, it can then be color coded this is a red session this is an amber session this is a green session and then i have a, like a traffic light system so this is what a green session looks like and this is maybe i might use like a plate model for example you know green session is like core carbohydrate more fruits and veg and then you know protein is consistent but then your red session you kind of use a different plate where it's half carbohydrate so you're kind of so when players know or say, you know, this is a red session coming up, I need to feel this way, or this is a green session coming up, I don't quite need to feel the same. If you can get it right and get it implemented right and people understand it, a traffic light system I find is like, it's just a really easy system to kind of implement where you're essentially fueling depending on how much work you have to do. If it's a really hard session, <clears throat> that requires more energy, that requires more fuel. But the concept is just, that's a red day. So you know that you've got to fuel for the red day. So, you know, you got to eat in preparation for a red day. Or the concept is it's green, it's green today, lads. It's a green day. You don't need to eat as eat quite as um as much carbohydrate, for example. So I think that's a is an it's a pretty easy well, I hope it's a pretty easy system for people to follow. No, it definitely makes sense. And even for me, again, I wouldn't be involved in the nutritional aspect of things when it comes to any means of performance. But like just listening to that, that makes sense. If I got my schedule at the start of the week, just to say, oh yeah, okay, red session, boom. At this time, I have to have this food just to keep me going for that particular session. So yeah, no, that's that's brilliant. So to talk about injury, first of all, how would you actually address nutrition with someone who is injured? Sometimes injury can be a time where people want to get back on the pitch as much uh, as quick as possible. And you'll often get people who probably don't usually engage with you in terms of nutrition. They'll nearly always engage with you when they are injured because everyone's looking for that something. So it can be an easy, it can be a, a way to get kind of wins. First of all, it depends on what the injury is because there's a difference between you know someone who is on lighter training loads versus someone who might have an immobilized limb. So like if someone has an immobilized limb, there's a pretty big risk that they can have significant muscle loss there. You know, you're talking a couple of hundred grams potentially of muscle loss with immobilized limbs. Thankfully, immobilized limbs aren't that common. You know, muscle injuries are more typical in GA, and that means that they're just not doing as much high intensity running. So you know that they're still getting in activity. So that means they can still maintain uh, muscle mass. If you might have, especially if it's like preseason, you might have some people who are injured and they might have gone a bit out of shape. There might be some pressure to kind of, you know, oh, you need to 
reduce body mass. If they have like immobilized limbs, you're moving into a gray area because if you're trying to drop body mass with an immobilized limb, you're already at risk of increasing muscle mass loss. If you then go into an energy deficit phase, you're going to accelerate that risk of muscle loss. So sometimes it's about you kind of trying to maintain you know, body mass it depends on the injury. Following on, on from that then, so once you kind of know like if they can actually exercise or not, if you can kind of do some exercise and you're just limited in some exercise, you can still do gym work, for example, which is actually, it seems to be quite often the case where people can still do gym work, but they can't sprint, for example. Yeah. Well, then you know that the risk of, you know, significant muscle loss is, is low. But you still want to kind of keep up protein needs because high protein is going to aid in that kind of recovery and repair process. Might also depend on what phase of injury they're in because there might still be some inflammation there, and then you might be able to target that with some like kind of antioxidant fuels. You know, fish oils is being looked at now as well. In addition to protein, looking at um, you know long-term fish oil supplementation it seems to reduce muscle soreness, like just after exercise in, in itself, and it might be useful in terms of you know trying to accelerate that process from recovery. And then there's like what colors are like like red, blue, blue, red, blue and reds are you're thinking about fruits first. So so people listening when I'm, when I'm talking about blue and reds are typically high in polyphenols uh, and antioxidants. So you'll obviously have like green leafy veg and they're all full of nutrients as well. Green leafy veg would be full of like nitrates, for example, which will increase blood flow. So they can be good. But then blue and red berries, for example, high in antioxidants, high polyphenols. It's worth probably pointing out that. Nearly all these kind of type of foods that I'm talking about, there's a supplement for them. There is supplements targeted called tart cherry juice that people might have heard of. They're basically taking polyphenols that you can get from, you know, red and blue berries and they're putting it into a supplement form. I always say to people, like, it's almost like cliche where you're telling people to eat their fruits and vegetables, but not even from a health perspective. Does, does performance benefits to having fruits and vegetables in the diet? Because there are these companies which are taking fruits and vegetables and just taking one or two nutrients out of them, putting them into supplement form. So like your green leafy vegetables, like uh, spinach, for example, very high in nitrates. People might have heard of beetroot juice. Mm. Spinach is actually higher in nitrates than beetroot. It's just harder to put into a concentrated shot. I'm trying to see if I can come up with like a smoothie, some sort of recipe that gives you like enough nitrates as a shot. So then you can just make your own smoothie at home. So nitrates are going to improve blood flow. So it's going to increase blood flow to the area, which should help with recovery. This is one of the reasons that you do exercise as well to increase blood flow to the area. Your polyphenols and your antioxidants and your kind of red and blues, they're going to fight any damage there, hopefully reduce inflammation. Potential for fish oils to reduce inflammation, it's not going to be acute. Fish oils work kind of in terms of more long term if you are deficient in vitamin d you're probably the muscle is going to regenerate at a slower rate we're kind of moving into summertime so we're at less risk of that now but during the winter time in ireland there's a high risk of being deficient in vitamin d if you're not supplement and if you are deficient in vitamin d what is you get is you get slower regeneration of the muscle so if you kind of damage the muscle the muscle regenerates if you're deficient in vitamin d it regenerates slower so vitamin d will be important as well when it comes to that then you can look at some other supplements. It depends, like if it's a bone injury, you can actually supplement with calcium. So about a thousand milligrams or fifteen hundred milligrams of calcium taken before you do exercise can then actually increase bone strength as well. So, or you know, and you can increase bone mineral density and, and so on. So we also, as I kind of said earlier on, we use collagen as well to kind of promote collagen synthesis. And the research on collagen is quite early. So it seems to if you consume collagen. With vitamin C, so you need vitamin C with it as well, or vitamin C causes to activate collagen synthesis. So if you consume collagen with vitamin C, 
it seems to increase markers of collagen synthesis and it seems to increase collagen synthesis in bioengineered ligaments and tendons. We have no data to say that it actually improves recovery from injury. Tendons and ligaments are 80% collagen and it's typically damaged to, to them, those structures if you do have an injury. So logically, there may be a benefit to consuming collagen. We'd, we'd take it anyway because, you know, it's kind of no risk. At the, like we have an hour beforehand. All we do is we have like a gelatin. So we got like Dr. Utkar's jelly with some blackcurrant juice and some berries in there. So you're getting kind of your vitamin C from your berries, blackcurrant, and you're getting the collagen from the gelatin itself. So there's kind of low, low, no risk there with it. And what I say, if there are people kind of like science people kind of listening, I guess still, it's only been compared to a placebo. So we know that collagen is better than taking nothing. We don't know if collagen is better than having, you know, a whole fluid protein source, for example. So there's still lots of questions in terms of science, but it's something that we kind of use in practice for the time being. And it could, it could we could get a study in the next year or two that says actually when you compare this to protein, it's worse than like protein is better. And then you like then you kind of have to change the practice around a little bit. But for now, that'd be kind of another strategy that we'd we'd use in terms of kind of helping people accelerate their recovery from injury. Or maybe even we might use it in a prehab as well, you know. Some people who have had niggles in the past and are trying to protect against getting another niggle in the future. I think you're after giving my my uh, dissertation for my master's degree, Mark. To be totally <laughs> honest with you. Thanks for that. <laughs> um, specifically, then with the current times, the the pandemic. Um, having spoken to athletes myself, obviously on the podcast and outside of it, there's been a good few athletes who have actually picked up COVID along the way. Thankfully due to their, obviously their own health and well-being, they were asymptomatic for the majority. Have you experienced any athletes on the Dublin team or the GA, any GEA team that you've worked with or even any of the individuals that you've worked with that have actually contracted COVID? And what have you done? Is there any nutritional strategies to actually addressing COVID-19? Oh, yeah, no, I wouldn't give any nutritional advice for, for COVID. Um, n- none of our players, thankfully, um, last season, we... we well, I think we had like pretty strict pro- protocols in place. So we would have never even have been inside together last season. The only time the lads would have been inside would have been at, when they're at Croke Park in the dressing rooms. And, and that was it. The rest of the time we were all kind of outdoors and um, looking enough like everyone was kind of safe in that regard. I know I was asked to do a talk on nutrition and the immune system at the start of COVID, not with the senior hurlers or anything like that. But I actually declined at the time because I thought, I thought, oh, it's a bit sketchy if I'm doing a talk on immunity with COVID because it, like what you might deliver with like normal immune function, um, which is all still applicable. But it might, it might, I, for me, it kind of felt like I was, I would have been giving advice for COVID and I, and like COVID would have been kind of like a, like a new virus. Like I couldn't, I couldn't be given nutrition advice for, for immunity. So I kind of, I kind of turned down um, everything in that regard. Like, I don't think there's been any kind of research on COVID-19 and and nutrition. I know there's some like observational research with vitamin D, um, but, but it's, 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 it's even all that, it's observational at the moment. Like it's, there's, there's no randomized clinical control trials with vitamin D. Um, but the, the only randomized control trial is when people are in hospital already and they give them a mega dose of vitamin D and then vitamin D doesn't do anything. But I suppose the argument behind vitamin D is that if you have sufficient levels, you're less likely to get to end up in hospital in the first place. Yeah, more of a prevention as opposed to the cure type thing. Yeah, but there's no study to say that that happens. The only sure. thing that the only thing that they've looked at is people in hospital tend to have less vitamin D, but you don't know the cause and effect there. You know, mm. like I was like I was saying actually about a few minutes ago, in Ireland during the winter time, it makes sense for everyone to take a vitamin D anyway, in my opinion. 
you know, because we've got high prevalence of vitamin D deficiency during the winter. Now that we're coming into like mid-April, going into May, that might be less of a concern. Like another thing that we'd, we'd use, just this is kind of in terms of normal um, immunity, is we'd use zinc acetate lozenges. So zinc acetate, I know there's some reviews on this as well, like Cochrane reviews. Zinc acetate is a specific type of zinc. Uh, you take it in a lozenge form, a little bit like you take a strepsil. And you're stuck on these like high elemental zinc. So, you know, it's about 75 milligrams is what you need in terms of uh, zinc. And that's about, you need the tablets like about 30 milligrams. So you're talking two to three tablets per day, sucking it like a lozenge. And the way it's supposed to work is that essentially the zinc, the elemental zinc in that dose kind of stops the virus from replicating at the back of your throat. Now, this is just for colds and flus, just like so people are, are aware. Like in the winter time, if someone does get kind of cold or flus, I've got, I even use it myself because um, I used to, I used to suffer, you know, waking up in the morning with like a dry throat and that kind of affects you. Like stuff, if you have a stuffy nose, well, then you're kind of breathing through your mouth when you're sleeping and then you keep waking up because you've got dry mouth and that kind of develops into like a sore throat. And where elemental zinc is, you take it at the first onset of kind of symptom when it comes to like a sore throat or something like that. This is like for just a cold or flu and then it reduces the amount of time that you basically are sick by about a third. So it's meant to be about like a 30%, 30, 33% reduction in the time that you actually spend sick. So maybe you might have got cold for like a week and you get cold for like three days, two to three days or something like that instead. Yeah, so they, they be kind of some things that we do is um, like vitamin C is a bit sketchy. Again, there's not great research. There's some, some research that's showing that if you take high dose vitamin C, you've got reduced risk. Um, but like this is again, I've got colds and flus, but it's, it's one of those... Like, is there a harm from taking it? You know, possibly not. Is there a benefit from taking it? Unclear, you know, so it's kind of weighing up the kind of, you know, risk versus benefit. So I just want to reiterate for the listeners as well that what we just spoke about there is specifically about colds and flus, just before anyone gets the idea that this is about COVID. <laughs> yeah. Everything we have just spoken about is not about COVID, even though the question was asked about it. It's specifically about colds and flus. Thank you very much. I wanted to actually just diverge a little bit into another topic, if you're comfortable enough talking about it, Mark, is pandemic nutrition. Now, not performance nutrition, everyday nutrition. For anyone kind of sitting at home right now who's who hopefully is listening to this, working from home, the step count may have gone down from not being out and about in their office, wherever they're working from. And general physical activity has gone down. You're bored of your workout. I suppose nutrition-wise, to first of all, improving nutrition, it's obviously individual. So it'd be unfair to ask you that question. How could you improve your nutritional strategies at home? What's a good way of sustaining it? Yeah, I suppose if there's anything that triggers you, um, I suppose the first step is not having it in sight. So you almost want to create physical barriers to food or foods that at least trigger you in your home. And this can be like simple stuff. So you might have like it's cliche that, you know, a bowl of fruit on the table, you know, it's kind of cliche from like years ago. We'd always have a bowl of fruit on the table. But if you have food, which is in kind of plain sight, you're more likely to kind of go for it because it's a really easy option physically. Whereas if you think about if you had a, bar, a bowl of, you know, biscuits out on the table, it's very easy to pick at something like that. So if you say, for example, you do some art, something like that, where you have like easy access, you had a biscuit tin on the counter, you have a biscuit jar, something like that regard. If those biscuits went on the top shelf, and at the back and they were behind the field, which means that every time you wanted a biscuit, you had to reach up to the top shelf and move the field and take it out. Well, actually, even creating those type of, of barriers 
they they make it even though it's not, it doesn't sound a lot harder they make it harder to access that type of food which means that you know it's less likely that you're going to you know give in to little snacks here and there and that's typically where people fall down is kind of picking here and there so it's not like you have to like totally get all the crap out of the house and you're not allowed to eat this stuff again it's just that just make it a little bit harder so that you know it, like i'm saying you have to work for it but you got to work for those those little treats um and then i suppose another thing is like don't let yourself go too hungry if you are going too hungry or you're trying you're trying too hard you're restricting yourself from from, from too much or something like that you'll hit a breaking point if anyone has ever gone to the shop when they're hungry and done their, their food shopping you know that your food choices when you're shopping are very different you know because you're craving quick fix quick sugar that, that type of stuff so try not letting yourself go go too hungry throughout the day and then i suppose is still allowing yourself that kind of time where if you do want some biscuits like have a cup of tea and have some biscuits because you know you need that sustainability in your life in life as well whenever people are kind of arguing something with nutrition i never kind of view it as like diet per se you're trying to make lifestyle changes or you're trying to implement some changes which are sustainable something that you can do for the rest of your life and something which is going to benefit for your rest of life and that might be something like an 80 20 approach where like 80 percent of your diet i always say about including good stuff in your diet so make sure that you're eating in high quality protein sources make sure that you are getting enough fruits and vegetables in the diet and then you're not trying to exclude other stuff like if you have got a plate full of like fruits and vegetables and you know chicken for example it leaves less room for other stuff anyway. At the same time, you're not totally excluding it. So if you do want on a Friday to have like a different type of meal, well then you know, have, have it on a Friday. You know, even that psychological state of knowing that no food is being restricted from you. You know, you can eat what you what you want, when you want, but you're just trying to eat, you're just trying to incorporate good foods more often. That's why I personally try to approach it. It's the way I kind of, you know, try to teach people how, how to approach it. It's hard, you know, it's not, it's not an overnight fix. I always t- I like to tell people, I, I, I'm at a stage where I can have like a, a bag of minstrels, you know, like a share bag of minstrels beside my bed. And I'll have like a couple, I'll have like three, three or four minstrels just to, just to, if I want a bit of chocolate. But there would have been a time like 10 years ago where the whole bag would have been gone. And I'm not, I know there's, <laughs> preach. <laughs> yeah. And I know there's, there's probably like most people listening are probably thinking that whole bag would be gone. But it's, it's, it's just about like training that kind of psychological state of that. No, I can have, I have some. I can have some chocolate whenever I want. So if I do need a little bit of chocolate, I can have it. And then because I I, I find that if you restrict something and restrict and restrict it, and you do get like a taste of it, well then you can't stop. If you if you if you've gone that long and psychologically you've restricted yourself from food for that long, when you do hit that point, it's almost like breaking point and there's no going back. I feel like it's also human nature as well, like in the sense of I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm not allowed to do this, but then you just want to do it anyway. It's kind of like you're, you're rebelling against yourself nearly. So exactly as you said, like it doesn't pack there, and you're, you're putting the leash on yourself. You're like, no, 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 stop that now. Oh no, I'm actually gonna eat the whole bag. F- you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's brilliant yeah. advice, Mark. Um, I act, so to finish off each episode, uh, I usually get the listeners' questions on my Instagram page, uh, which just for the listeners is performance underscore lb. If you're interested in following and even messaging us, um, the first question I have here for you is from a work colleague of mine called Ray. He's asking you, and now he's actually a GAA player. Football uh, or hurling? Say again. Is he football or hurling? He's a footballer. He's, he calls himself a footballer anyway. So uh, Ray's asking you, um, what's the best food or drink to have pre-training or pre-match if it was in the morning? Yeah, well, what, like if the if the game was in the morning. Yeah, we'll go we'll go for a game in this one. Yeah, typically what you'd say is you're trying to time your pre-match meal about kind of two to two to four hours beforehand. Most people are normally sitting around the three hours beforehand. If that's not if it's not possible to consume something three hours beforehand, which is what I think this question is kind of 
leading to. I can answer it both ways, will I do that anyway? You go first, yeah, why not? Yeah. So like so so normally like you'd want to be having like a decent amount of carbohydrate about three hours before the game. Bearing in mind that most of your fueling is done the day before. So you're just trying to top up your kind of carbohydrate. So, so you think about like your fuel in the tank. You're trying to top up that fuel tank. Did you fill the fuel tank the day before? The car has been running idle all night, which means that a little bit has dropped off from full. You're just trying to top that back up again in the morning. So typically about three hours before the game, you're kind of wanting um, a high carbohydrate meal. So we that could be something like pancakes even. Like, like you could have pancakes and fruit in the morning with some yogurt or something along them lines. Some people have cereal even, you know, because cereal is you know high sugar um, source. I like to have some sort of like fructose in there. So by that, I mean some sort of like fruit sugar because when your car is idling, it's actually your liver, which is kind of depleting in glycogen. And sh- fruit sugar sources are a little bit better, better at repleting that liver glycogen. So if you can get in some sort of like fruit source, it doesn't have to be fruit per se. It can be like a fruit juice, for example. But something like that in, in the morning, about three hours, three hours, three to four hours beforehand. Now you could have something like eggs and soda bread. Even like soda bread, you're getting like thick chunks of soda bread in there. If it is a case where it's a morning game and you haven't got essentially three hours beforehand to to consume something, like I was saying, you do most of your fuel on the day, day beforehand, so it's not too much of a concern. If you've ticked all the boxes the day before, it's not too much stress. I wouldn't worry too much. Too much. You are just topping up that. You probably just have a smaller meal than if you would have, and even you could do that into something like smoothie form. So you could use something like lots of like milk, like a milk base, a low fat milk based smoothie, maybe with like some bananas in there and berries. So then you're getting that into you. It's going to be kind of decent amount of carbohydrate even within that. And then when you come to do the hour within, you know, competition, then you kind of go into your like sports mode where you can have a sip on a sports drink, Haribo. We'd even have like bags of Haribo, stuff like that, quick, quick sugar sources in and around the hour beforehand. And like I, I, I kind of view it as um, you've got the car. But during the game, or like if you're thinking about the game as a journey, you've got stops along the way. So you can start off at the garage, you know, within the hour beforehand and have a sports drink or some jellies. At halftime, again, you've got another stop at the garage where you can top up. You can have whether it be bananas, oranges at halftime, whether you like something like a Nutri-Game bar or you just like some sports gels or sports drinks. So there are there are opportunities there. So the, like the, the pre-match meal, it isn't as big a deal if you've got all your fuel in the day beforehand. So I suppose it's those kind of two scenarios. The next question is from, assuming I get sufficient protein, uh, is it optimal to just consume carbs for recovery when it comes to conditioning sessions? Yeah, if, if you're talking about just the immediate meal after, if you do have kind of fat, will slow digestion. Now you kind of ask yourself, how important is it to recover as quickly as possible? If you've got another training session within the same day, or you've got a learning match within a short period of time, well, then it might be important to maximize recovery. And then within those kind of one to four hours after the session itself, you might you might be able to just kind of go low fat. You'll never go zero fat. You know, all foods have some sort of some in it because fat will slow down digestion a little bit. If recovery isn't, you know, if you're not training again for another couple of days, if you're not, you know, gotten haven't got a match until another week away, well then you're gonna restore your glycogen levels, you know, within 24 hours anyway. So it may not be necessary to totally cut out fat, you know, it, especially if if that means that eating some sort of foods which are a little bit not to your taste. So sure. you know, so it's not it's not a must. Like it probably will speed up glycogen replenishment a little bit if you kind of focus if once protein is done, it's all carbohydrate. But then it's just a matter of how important is it to get the glycogen in as quick as possible. There might be some situations where it is important. There might be other situations where it's not important. 
the last one I have for you is uh, purely based on rumor now. So I want to see how I want to see where you take this. He heard today that f- that foods high on the GI scale actually help you sleep better. Um, normally, we're told not to eat too close to bedtime, but would a pre-bed high GI snack be better for recovery? Yeah, so there actually is a little bit of research on this. So high GI snacks in the evening time seem to reduce sleep latency. Now, what I always say about nutrition and sleep is that the, the evidence is not strong. Yeah, so we haven't got very good data when it comes to nutrition and sleep. So, there is, But there is some data to suggest that you know a high GI snack reduces sleep latency. So sleep latency is the time it takes to actually fall asleep. So if you do have a high GI snack, you know, an hour or so before bed, um, it might reduce the time to fall asleep and you've got to offset that against having a big meal before bed so that the size of the meal itself can be important having a big meal before bed can actually delay then sleep as well because they're essentially having to feel like you were saying feel too close to bedtime and that can disturb sleep so if it is something like a, a snack a high gi snack that that may actually help um and then you're also well, sometimes you're often telling people to have a protein snack before bed. So the way you can kind of do this is to have something like a, just like a yogurt with some fruit, because then you're going to get some G, um, high GI carbs from some, some of the fruit and you get your protein hit from from the yogurt itself. And it doesn't have to be directly before bed. It's like, like one, one, to, one to two hours, or maybe even two hours beforehand so that your food has like time to digest. You'll get protein synthesis during the night. The high GI may help reduce sleep latency, which helps you get to sleep a little bit quicker. And then hopefully then you're going to extend that recovery during the night. Mark, absolutely super. Thanks so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. All the information that you gave was very specific, really helpful. And I'm sure a bunch of nutritionists and even just the general Joe Soap of listeners who are listening to this will take away an awful lot from that. So thank you for your time and uh, best of luck with the uh, with the teams going forward. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be invited on. Season two, episode one, done and dusted. Thanks again to Mark for hopping on and providing all that insight and solid information. If you are an aspiring performance nutritionist, or indeed if you are one already, there's a couple of tips there that you can definitely take away to apply into your own practice with whichever individuals and teams that you're working with. Mark is a very approachable person when it comes to discussing all things sports nutrition, so if you are involved in sport, then do get in touch with him. His Instagram name is at mgnutrition1, and on Twitter, his username is at Mark Germain. If you are looking for his username, pop onto my Instagram page and performance underscore LB, where you will find him in my following section. On next week's episode, I'm going to be speaking to the owner of an award-winning dessert business in Ireland. All will be revealed on my Instagram page next week. Please consider showing support to this podcast by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. All that good stuff. And I'll chat to you guys next week. Bye-bye.